Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Winnie M. Lee, who is an author and activist, and uh, she's a previous podcast guest. I had her on the podcast a couple of years ago before she had published her book, and we met again to chat about the book, about her activism in the areas of consent. She runs a festival called the Clear Lines Festival, and uh, I realised that the last couple of weeks of this podcast have been dealing with uh, gender and consent issues. I ask my guests what they or what they've been wrestling with, and these this seems to be in the zeitgeist. I think we have a really interesting conversation because Winnie has been talking about this stuff for about ten years, and she's very she's got a very certain and uh, very she has a lot of certainty around it. I think because she's had a long time to develop her ideas and to think about this, and and for somebody who has been talking about something which for a long time was very unpopular, and now it's sort of come into the current uh, discourse much more prominently it's really interesting to see her perspective on all of that my role in this conversation i think was to be a little bit disruptive not quite devil's advocacy but a little bit um pokey maybe but uh, i think we ended up with some really interesting moments of um, insight and discussion and disagreement so please do buy winnie's book it's called dark chapter or go along to one of her festivals uh, I wanted to say thank you, speaking of support, to my Patreon subscribers. You make this possible. Uh, it makes my life easier. It makes my work better. And I appreciate it immensely. Uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber, of course, uh, you get two-for-one tickets to my festival shows, which are coming up now in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. Um, so you just send me an email and we'll we figure that out. AliceRFraser at gmail.com is the place to do that. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is where you can support me. You can support me um, by giving a certain amount per episode, uh, like whatever whatever that happens to be, however many episodes you listen to, or uh, per month. And there's various tiers and so on and so forth where you get things, including the opportunity to suggest topics for articles. I'm always willing to address an idea if you want to email me or ask me um, for my thoughts, for whatever they're worth or for a comedy article or a take on something, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to provide uh, whatever suits you. So thank you to my Patreon subscribers. That is enough of that. Please do come along to my festival shows if you're in any of those places. I will be back in the UK in May doing things all over the country at various places and that will come out. Follow me at, at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E for that and Winnie M. Lee at Winnie M. Lee on Twitter as well. Lee spelled L-I. That's all. That's all I think I had to say. I probably have to say more and I've forgotten it, but I am doing a lot of brain work at the moment. I'm doing a, a po- podcast, document, audible book, documentary thing uh, on meditation and brain science and that will be coming out in probably june july but doing a lot of the stuff for that at the moment so it's quite a lot of brain exercises uh which is making me a little scattered but it's interesting neurogel dries really clumpy in your hair and i say neurogel is like when they put the electrodes on your head it's not good for your hair um and that's the insight i have so far on that I will stop rambling and let you get on with listening to this podcast. I think it is a really interesting conversation. I'd love to know what you think about it. Email me if you have thoughts. Um, otherwise, I will talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. No.
on um, trying to get the novel optioned for film rights, which would be cool. And then I also um, kind of run this festival called the Clear Lines Festival, which um, we had, you know, you performed at it in December, along with Tiff Stevenson and some other great people. And there's just been a lot of interest in terms of bringing it to other locations. So there's people in Scotland and there's people in the US that want to make it happen. So trying to have those conversations as well. So to back up a few steps, I had you on my podcast a couple of years ago in Edinburgh. Yeah. And at that point, you had not published this novel. No. You were already working on it a little bit. Um, Yeah, I was actually probably almost done. That would have been... I think August 2015 that we had our first podcast together. So I was on the verge of finishing it. And then I pretty much would have finished it within a month of our last conversation and then sent it off to an agent. And then um, and then it was kind of a, it wasn't a straightforward um, kind of road in terms of getting it published, which is a whole interesting story we can get into. But yeah, I was close to finishing it. And I had just done the first edition of Clear Lines at the time. And Clear Lines is a festival that focuses on consent. Yeah, it's about, um, I guess, addressing sexual assault and consent and, and abuse, um, but using the arts and discussion to do it. Because, um, you know, obviously now in you know February 2018, it's all over the news headlines, wasn't so much the case in 2015. But a lot of times when you see, you know, these issues being spoken about, it's in a very kind of like, uh, you know, serious and, I mean, it is a very serious issue, obviously, but, you know, very kind of... Um, almost off-putting way because it's either always framed by like criminal justice or you know crime and the fact that lives are ruined by these issues or you have conferences about it and I actually I think there's a lot of room for I'm using the arts to address it just because well as a comedian I'm a very strong believer in the fact that people very rarely want to be told off or told how to think and that the the point of of entertainment can be to draw people into a discussion and and give them perspectives that they might not otherwise have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With with the Clear Lines Festival, do you worry that it'll be all people who already agree with you, that it's preaching to the converted, or Uh, is that part of what's good about it, or...? um, That's part of what's good about it. I mean, so in some ways, there's sort of two audiences that we're trying to reach with Clear Lines. So one is people that are already affected by the issue are already very concerned about it. Those probably, certainly in the beginning, well, are going to be the main people that, that go to Clear Lines. And I think that is a purpose that's worthy in and of itself, right? Because um, as a rape survivor myself, I mean, for years, I was just like, how come we're not talking about this issue? Or how come we're not ever seeing it portrayed in, in movies or television the right way? Um, so there's definitely a space for, like, Um, that kind of art that's being produced by people with those experiences to be shared and to be seen by people that also have those experiences. So that's kind of one audience. Um, An analogy would be whenever, and I'm at the age now where friends of mine are getting married and having children, Mm. whenever one of those people who's trying to have children comes out to talk about a miscarriage, the number of people who come out of the woodwork and just are like, thank you for talking about this. When When it happened to me, I didn't feel like I could talk about it because it... You know, everyone wants it to be such a happy story and, yeah. and it's much more complicated than that. It's a, it's a really reassuring thing to have other people who understand your perspective talk about it and sometimes talk about it in a way that you haven't put the words together mm. for. If they can articulate it in a really good way, then you have the vocabulary for the next time mm. that you want to talk about it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's too bad that, 
that issues like miscarriage or, or you know other kinds of women's issues like I don't know like period pains right yeah. <laughs> um, which you know, have afflicted me my entire life right you know or or rape or sexual assault a lot of these issues people don't feel comfortable talking about it in public and why is that and you know why does our society kind of frown down on like these kinds of discussions when they're kind of a fundamental part unfortunately of being a woman sometimes right um, obviously we want things to change and we don't want sexual assault to be so frequent but um, at the end of the day I mean we're never going to change the culture around this issue for example if if we're not talking more openly about it yeah I feel like it's presented as very polar in that mm. you can be either a victim who complains and is weak or you can be strong and not talk about it and not make a fuss and with all of these issues I think Mm. that's the kind of the feeling that people have who have these experiences of either I can talk about it but then I'm perceived as weak or you know pitiable or not Mm. entirely powerful and strong or I can just shut it down and say I'm fine and it's not a big deal yeah yeah I mean I think with sexual assault it's it's a little bit different I don't totally agree with what you're saying I mean I, I, yeah. I agree that there's a, a polarity in terms of I want you to disagree okay with here's I mean, this is gonna be Winnie disagreeing with Alice here um, I totally agree with you that there's a polarity between like victim and survivor right um, and victims are weak and they've been their lives have been fundamentally changed and downtrodden as a result of you know a, a sexual crime according to that narrative and survivors yeah, are that's strong the rhetoric, yeah. yeah and survivors are strong and they triumph over it and it's about like you know recovering from adversity and fighting back um, I think in this case particularly when it comes to sexual assaults victims are often portrayed I mean if you look in kind of like mainstream media narratives as the ones that don't speak out about it and are silent and they just have this thing eating away at them all their lives um, so the silence is kind of what makes them a victim according to that kind of mainstream narrative and the survivors is someone is the person who's outspoken and you know is kind of the activist and the campaigner and like constantly rallying to, to change public opinion um, and that's seen as being something quite heroic mm. and as somebody who's kind of basically been both of those uh, um it's you know though that polarity is really dangerous because at the end of the day no one's just one of those two you're generally somewhere in between so so my novel for example dark chapter the dedication page is dedicated to all the victims and all the survivors and most of us who are somewhere in between because you know there are days not so much anymore but certainly immediately after the assault when I basically felt my life had been ruined temporarily by that the thing that happened to me on that afternoon I was just to give a bit of backstory, I was violently raped in a park by a 15-year-old boy, and that was something which I didn't ever expect to have happen to me. I was working in the film industry as a producer, um, you know, quite outspoken person, and then suddenly this happened to me, and and the PTSD and the anxiety and the depression were immediate, right, in terms of how they affected my life and the way I moved about the world. So. Yeah, I was a victim at the time. I mean, I was a victim of a crime, and that's a pretty black and white statement. Um, I, you know, I had 39 separate injuries after the assault. So that, you know, I'm not going to try to deny the fact that I was a victim of the crime. Years later, now it's almost 10 years. Um, it'll be 10 years in April. I, um, I would say I'm a survivor, um, but that doesn't mean that everything's like hunky dory and fine and wonderful. My life is like better than it was before. I mean, there are definite negative impacts from that crime that have affected kind of my life all the way today and continues to. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a victim so much anymore, but I was a victim then. And I think most people, even you know, 10 years or 20 or 30 years after their assault, will feel like they're somewhere in between. And there are days that anyone that knows you know that has experiences of depression knows there are days when you kind of feel like it's all caught up with you again and you can't really function that well and there are days when you're like oh no my life's moved on and I've kind of put everything back together but 
The issue um, about the silence and the speaking out is also often portrayed in this broad brushstroke way where like to be empowered, you have to speak out, which I, I understand on the most part, but there are reasons why people stay silent. You know, there are strategic reasons, which are maybe reasons of survival in some ways as well. Um, yeah. and well, I think, mm. I think that's, that's a really good point. Maybe I'm thinking on a different vector in terms of people who haven't experienced anything vector. like this. Yeah, sorry. I love that term. <laughs> I love vector because it's a good d- description of like a different angle mm. on, the, on the problem. Maybe my perspective is coming from a different point of view, which is if, if I'm thinking from the mainstream perspective, yeah. mm. uh, your narrative, both of victims and survivors, mm. would count. So I, have, I keep in my life some friends who are quite right wing. Maybe okay. just to give myself an angle on <laughs> yeah, yeah. these people as people. Because yeah. they are human beings, even if I disagree with them about absolutely everything. Uh, but the idea would be something like, uh, oh, if you're complaining about it, mm. it's making a big deal about it. It's not, you know, I'm bored of hearing all of these stories. Yeah, yeah. And then equally, I don't think the quiet and damaged victim is respectable in their eyes either. Right. The only respectable victim is the one who sort of brushes it off, mm. who can just get over it. Yeah. And that's... That's tough. And that's in that way, the person yeah. who is silent and the person who speaks has mm. not... Both of those count yeah. to that original polarity that I described yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the weak victim or the complainy victim. Right. Both of those right. fall into that category. And so I think, like, part of what your project is Mm. is to remind everyone Mm -hmm. or people who don't have a perspective on it that we're all human beings. Yeah, and that it's that exact attitude of, you know, just brush it off and, like, move on with your life, which is, you know, totally ignorant about the impact of sexual assault on someone's life, you know. And, and like, I never thought about it myself until I became a victim, right? Because, you you know, you obviously as a woman, like, generally you grow up with this fear of rape, of this thing called rape. And I actually... I suppose I had actually known women who were themselves victims and survivors prior to my own assaults, but we never spoke about it. So it was just never something that had really entered my reality I suppose right um and then I became a victim right and um yeah and then I said and then I realized like wow this is this is a massive impact on my life I mean I wasn't able to work for years afterwards and I never went back to my job as a film producer because it's really hard to get back into the industry when you're out of the circuit as you know um and then also you know obviously my finances were affected um and they obviously continue to be affected because I wasn't earning money which wasn't you know earning interest at the time right um so there's and that's just kind of like the financial and professional side of things right so there's really concrete side yeah yeah exactly I mean some I often use that as a as an example just because it's easier for people to grasp right if you if you're if you kind of quantify it and say like okay here's figures here here was money I wasn't earning during that time period let's compound the interest I would have earned at the time and compound that over the 10 years that have passed and I am this much poorer as a result of that thing that happened to me also you know I had to pay for therapy there's all these other you know kinds of things I had to pay for right and I'm fairly well off in terms of being you know I'm not like upper class but um, you know I I probably grew up fairly lower middle class I had a good education so I had access to ways of earning money um, which somebody who you know maybe didn't have the education doesn't have so the kind so some of the part of my project is also about I guess um, making people realize that you know where you are in society prior to your assault or before and after um, has an impact, a major impact on the resources that are available to you and the way you recover and if you recover, right? Yeah, so you you drop 
say, three metres, and if you're already quite high up mm. the ladder, you can climb back up. Mm. But if you're right down the bottom of the ladder, that three-metre drop takes you to rock bottom down yeah, and out. Yeah, exactly. And if you're an illegal immigrant, for example, I mean, you probably can't report your rape and then you know you you don't you don't get access to the kinds of services and resources that are maybe available to you if you do report your rape um you know and also illegal immigrants people who are disabled you know children in foster care they are already more vulnerable and so they're already in some ways more vulnerable to being victims of sexual abuse because they don't have opportunities to speak out and to report and to be believed in some ways. So, so yeah, um, there's a lot of kind of research that's been done kind of in sociology of, you know, people who are homeless and on the street and, um, you know, a lot of them maybe have abused drugs and that's why they're on the street, but maybe the like kind of the instigating thing in their life would have might, maybe would have been sexual abuse that then caused them to spiral into drugs and then caused them to spiral into being homeless. So, I mean, sexual abuse has a massive impact on people's lives. And oftentimes, you know, it's it's not really realized in a lot of ways, which is why comments where it's like, oh, just brush it off and like get over it or like move on with your life are just incredibly ignorant in a lot of ways. Yeah, which is one of the interesting things. I think it's hard for people to conceive of... Um, long-term impacts mm. you can understand an immediate injury but things like i guess as an analogy would be grief that yeah. sort of comes back and ebbs and flows and you do recover at a certain point but it's still part of your life that experience of loss yeah it's yeah. you know it makes that whole kind of very old-fashioned idea of female virtue and being able to keep it or lose it what it, is, that? It, I mean, what it is, is female virtue it's a totally it, patriarchal construct it is a patriarchal um, construct but it does give you at least in that context would give you a framework for something ha having been lost that is yeah. valuable yeah and i mean a more modern way to put it would be your sense of of personal physical mm. integrity and security mm, yeah that is so so incredibly important mm -hmm. that we don't think about it yeah but if you think about how annoyed you get if somebody on a bus impinges on your space yeah or you know someone shoves you in the street and how outrageous that is and how infuriating that is and how upsetting that can be yeah, yeah. particularly if the person is bigger than st and stronger than you or particularly if you're in a situation where you can't stand your ground or mm. fight back yeah like that very very minor infringement on your personal physical integrity can piss you off for the rest of the day yeah and just sort of quantify that like expand that out to something as like intense and horrifying as sexual assault yeah yeah that's i think a, a, a framework in which to think about it yeah and I, I mean i you know one of the reasons i suppose I, I do the work i do when i use my own case i suppose or my own experience uh, very upfront as a way for talking about it is because i think you know in some ways my my rape fit into like the classic stranger rape right i was almost right i mean my my perpetrator was a 15 year old boy so he was half my age which is weird uh which is also why when i first met him i didn't actually think it was dangerous right i just saw this young kid that asking me these weird questions but um yeah, but i suppose you know um at the end of the day like you know he was a stranger and was reported in the news at the time this happened in belfast it was kind of all over the northern irish press it was reported in the news as you know like 15 year old boy you know violently rapes chinese tourists 
because I am Chinese. <laughs> um, but that was a that was kind of like a, a detail that they seized upon the media. Chinese tourist or Chinese student. I wasn't even a student at the time, but that again that fits a certain stereotype um, in the park. So teenage boy violently rapes Chinese student in a park, right? Um, and uh, and that was kind of the main image that was being of my rape that was being kind of um, kind of I suppose uh, seen in the media. And um, I mean that, and that was also quite bizarre for me to be on the receiving end. Of, you know, when I sat down two days later and Googled my rape, which is, I don't know why I did it, but I suppose I'm a curious person, so I just Googled rape West Belfast, and then I saw all these news stories about my rape. I was like, wow, that that is weird to see how I'm being described, and also just totally weird and surreal to be on the receiving end of news reports about something incredibly private that happened to you. Yes, and to have someone else telling your story, mm. I can understand why you would feel compelled to tell your own story yeah yeah exactly because i mean i was listening to like i don't know i was seeing all these news reports and then i even listened to like a a listen to a radio chat show for like a half hour there were people in northern ireland discussing my rape and and it wasn't really obviously in relation to me as winnie because i didn't know who i was but it was more about like oh you know is belfast still a safe city like how can we say if it's still a safe city if these things are happening um but there were you know local people calling up there was like the, the lord mayor of belfast you know came onto the show and made the statement. They said, oh, you know, I will, I will be reaching out to the victim to see how she's doing. And I'm like, no, you're not going to, right? You know, so it was kind of like my rape. No, of course not. I mean, I was like incredibly like cynical once I heard that. And I'm like, you're just, because there was an election coming up. And like, so there was this kind of notion of, you know, local politicians were going to have to weigh in on it. But obviously they were going to have to say like the right things to show that they cared about this issue. But at the end of the day, I mean, probably that person, Lord Mayor Belfast, hadn't been on the receiving end of sexual violence himself so it's it's just a bit weird for people that don't have that experience to be the ones talking about it right so um when i was listening to you know 30 minutes of people talking about my rape i just remember thinking well this is incredibly weird and and also it's in all this conversation there is no expectation that i as the victim would have a voice or would have a voice that's worth listening to and obviously, two two days after my assault, I wasn't in any state to make a public statement or, yeah, or speak to the media. Yeah, it would have been a terrible thing if yeah. people had been coming at you with microphones. Absolutely. But at the same time, it was almost this assumption that, you know, this poor girl, her life is ruined and, you know, she, she doesn't have a voice and she's just going to, like, slink back into shame and ignominy for the rest of her life. I mean, there was a woman who came onto the show, and this is all kind of actually detailed in my in my novel. Um, there's a woman who came onto the show and she said, my, my heart goes out to that, that wee Chinese girl uh, because, I know, <laughs> wee Chinese girl, um, because, because her life is now ruined, right? And I'm like, okay, um, you know, I guess she meant that she, like, it was coming from a place of sympathy, but at the same time, I was like, well, that's really, um, it's really damaging, like thing that your message that you're putting out there, which is just that, you know, okay, hey, I could be listening to that, and I am listening to that. And does it occur to you that the victim could be hearing these statements and thinking now, okay, my life is ruined, and then other people could be listening who themselves are also rape victims and thinking, you know, my life is has been ruined by that. And I think it's incredibly dangerous to to kind of tell that message that your life is permanently ruined by by rape and sexual assault, even though it will be fundamentally impacted, probably like permanently in certain ways, but it's not going to be ruined. So that capacity for recovery um, and for agency that the victim has to recover is is really important to stress as well and that's something you often don't see in kind of media narratives about the about these issues yes i mean i think it's interesting that idea i mean there's so many interesting things about it as you say it's like this super complex thing Mm. the idea that well it has to be covered in the news 
to a certain extent there's been a crime committed, which is a crime against the state. You know, it's yeah. not just against you, it's against the, the existence of law in our state. When mm. someone breaks a, a law in that way, it's an a, a assault to our society yeah. Yeah. as well as a personal assault. So talking about it from that angle is obviously necessary and newsworthy and all of that. Mm. But then people completely do, don't think... Even when they're directly tweeting someone, they don't think how their words will affect them. Yeah, yeah they don't exactly. think of the impact on, on people, and that's a really interesting kind of disjointed way of approaching it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that obviously explains a lot of kind of the the trolling that happens these days in Twitter. Just that you know people can put their opinions out there and don't really care about the impact of that. And I think certainly we, you know, there are ethical ways that we should we should be behaving more ethically in, in the public sphere, I suppose, in terms of the messages that we put out and the impact it could have on people. But I think people, a lot of people don't care. I don't think, you know, this particular woman who made that statement, obviously she was felt sorry for me and all that, right? Um, so she wasn't out there to hurt me in any way. But, um, but yeah, I think maybe people don't think enough about the kinds of messages that they're putting out there in the public sphere and the way it can be received, so. Do you think that the news media in that instance should have had somebody to speak if not for you but for the people who have a, a sexual assault victim should they have had somebody in that discussion who has personal experience mm, i think so yeah i mean i think um either somebody who's out as a survivor um and was willing to engage with the media and a lot of the work i do now is specifically about that about survivors who engage with the media and how how we can have the agency to try to um, better change the way that these issues are represented in news media. But, um, but yeah, I mean, oftentimes when a case like that is kind of being covered in the news, um, I mean, they might not get the victim themselves or a survivor themselves, but they'll speak to like the rape crisis center or they'll have a spokesperson from that, from an organization like that who, you know, in some ways knows a bit better the experience of a, of a, of a survivor. So I think it's important to bring that survivor and victim's perspective into things. Otherwise, our voices are continually being kind of elided out and shot out, which is, um, you know, one of the reasons I do all the work I do, because it's important if we're going to have public discussions about these issues. I mean, you really have to, like, you know, give the most prominence to the actual survivors, because they're the ones with the knowledge of what it's like to go through that experience, and they're the ones with the knowledge of how better to improve systems, for example. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, this sort of brings us onto issues of representation mm. generally, mm -hmm. and I'm torn about this yeah. um, in a more abstract way, because I think it is important to have first-person experiences, but I think it's also important to have academia and facts. Yep. And first-person experiences are a kind of fact, mm -hmm. but again, people who are victims of anything might not be the best people to speak objectively about them. Mm. I think we need to find a balance in the discussions that we're having between objective fact and emotional truth. I think mm. we sort of have swung wildly between those two and those two things are getting further and further apart. Yeah. You have people who are interested in talking about the experiences and the feelings, mm -hmm. but the flip side of that is, is, you know, racist people who have feelings about yeah. things and they can't yeah. be corrected because the feelings that they have, their subjective truth, mm -hmm. can't be overcome by mm -hmm. objective fact. Mm -hmm. And that's the nasty flip side of, I think, bringing people's emotional experiences forward and giving them the platform which is also incredibly important because for most of Western empir empiricist, imperial history, that kind of feeling has been put aside. Mm, and that yeah. means you're missing a big chunk of reality yeah. in, in the attempt to make it 
reality objective and truthful you cut out all of these kind of feelings and subjective experience but what would be an example of particularly in relation to the conversation about sexual violence like what would be an example of kind of feelings overtaking the facts in our kind of public understanding of it so for example if if for example an example i mean this isn't a real thing Mm. but a way that it could play out is if you gave to the victim the right to decide the punishment. Yeah, yeah, but that shouldn't be the case. Of course, that's <laughs> right? not. I mean, yeah. That is not the case, yeah. but it is, it is in some instances, on a kind of a lighter level, that does become the case in t- if we take this away from real-world crimes mm. to this the discourse. Yeah. If somebody says something offensive, for example, mm. everybody who is offended by that feels the right to punish that person. And that's right. on, the, on the level of discourse. Yeah, yeah. That's the case. And that's because we don't have a criminal system to deal with offence, and that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But it does mean that then you do have this kind of just feelings versus feelings, which doesn't really get you anywhere. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that that might be generalising things a bit. Like, when you're talking about sexual assault, like, there are, like, you know, things that it is abuse, right? Uh, you know, and obviously, as everyone will say, a grey area, a grey area, you know. Um, and, you know, so my case, it was, it was fairly black and white. Like, I, you know, a complete stranger, I didn't know this person, um, and I had 39 separate injuries. So that, you know, it's pretty clear evidence that it was not consensual, even though that was the defense's argument at the time. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. That I mean, a- that's that's the argument for every single sexual form, you know, form of you know sexual abuse. It's consensual, Even right? Even a stranger in a park who injured you severely? Yeah, that yeah. That is completely uh, insane. I mean, you know, he. I mean, he basically because of some of the you know, kind of the media outcry about my rape. Um, you know, he was compelled to turn himself in about five days later. Um, I mean, he, he, this is, this is kind of, I've imagined it in a novel because again, like, you know, I'm not, the novel's not supposed to be a representation of the real life thing that happens, but. No, it gives of, you that. Yeah, I, I draw inspiration from it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so as I was kind of told or the gossip sort of was that he was compelled to turn himself in by his father, right? Just because there was a media outcry and didn't look good for his community and family and stuff. Anyway, so, um. Yeah, but he turned himself in, but he, you know, he said, you know, it was consensual, right? And that, that is going to be the, always the argument for any kind of, um, you know, sexual violation, you know, for, from the defense side, um, which is incredibly insulting if you're the victim, right? You know, yes. <laughs> like so insulting. So I, you know, and that's why, um, you know, in real life, he actually pleaded guilty the morning of the trial. So I went through 11 months of hell thinking I was going to have to go fly over to Belfast, um, you know, and sit in court in front of the public in front of the actual perpetrator which is a terrifying thought if you're a victim um and describing great detail my rape right which is you know it's it's fairly humiliating i mean it's incredibly humiliating to have to do if you're the victim of if you've already been on the receiving end of that kind of crime and then to get justice in the legal sense you have to do that um yeah i mean it was quite emotionally traumatizing um just even the lead up to that uh to that trial I flew over to Belfast with some friends of mine, um, and uh, yeah, and then the morning of the trial, I was sitting in the courthouse um, in the witness room, waiting for the jury to be selected. And the barristers came in and said, "Oh, there's been a change, and um, if you'll re- agree to reduce the counts that he's charged with, he'll agree to plead guilty." Which meant that, you know, obviously, I wasn't going to have to 
go through the trial and do the testimony. So I obviously, you know, agreed to that right away, but it was just, it was a weird turn of events to happen quite suddenly and quite, you know, upsetting and disruptive for the victim to go through this, you know, huge emotional roller coaster, thinking that you're gonna have to testify. You know, I was like, you know, near suicidal pretty much at the time, just because the thought of having to sit and do that test and testimony was was terrifying um and then suddenly to be told that you don't have to do that because but not just that you don't have to do it that there's been some bargain struck yeah, yeah. and that these things these crimes that have been committed mm-hmm. of which there is a certain count if you pretend that these ones didn't happen yeah. you can get him for these ones yeah. to have it done in such a mechanistic mathematical yeah. bargaining way yeah. would also feel very strange yeah and given that part of the bargaining that they're not counting on is your own emotional feeling. Yeah. You know, the reality is, or the like objective truth is, you could have got him on all of those counts. Mm, yeah. If you wanted to go through that pain. Yeah. But your pain is not a factor in that. No, of course not. Decision. And that, yeah, and, that's, and it sort of mm. can't be, but also it feels wrong that it isn't. Yeah, and that's why the justice system is quite flawed, you know. So even though we need to use facts to decide these things i mean i you know i mean i think pretty much everyone you speak to who's a survivor who works in this field will tell you that there are serious problems with the criminal justice system if only six percent of reported rapes are resulting in conviction you know that that doesn't mean the 94 percent of them were false accusations obviously right um it just means that there wasn't enough evidence uh to result in a conviction under the current legal system so um, yeah, there's, I think there's huge problems. So, you know, but then going back to the issue of like what is fact and what is emotion, um, the Aziz Ansari case I thought was really interesting because that was a case where it wasn't, it wasn't workplace harassment. It took place between, you know, two, on some level, consenting adults in terms of the situation that they were in. She was at his place. Um, but then, uh, but then she later on said, no, that was actually sexual assault. What happened? And he seemed to have not thought that that was sexual assault. So, you know, can you say that that's a fact that she was actually assaulted in that in, in that scenario, or can you say it wasn't? So, I mean, I think it's important to have these conversations in terms of like, what is the definition of sexual assault, and does somebody feel assaulted? Uh, is that is that a valid claim that that person has been assaulted, right? Um, and that's, yeah, that's hmm. an interest. That is a really really interesting thing, and I, I think two things that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, one is the hashtag me too mm. movement whatever it, whatever it is phenomenon yeah um with a lot of people being called out for behaviors that are at worst grubby or icky mm. mm-hmm. sort of being basketed in with the worst kinds of horrendous criminal assault yeah mm-hmm. does that how does that make you feel do you think it's a good thing that it's better for kind of a rising tide lifts all boats or do you think it's diminishes the the power and importance of those really terrible things to put them in with some one getting slapped on the ass in the middle of a party i mean i would say the former i would say uh, you know that, that's quite a nice metaphor you use the rising tide lifts all boats but i think it yeah i think that kind of awareness of the larger spectrum is is a useful awareness to have publicly and i don't think someone's ever going to say like being slapped on the ass is as bad as being violently raped in the park you know and having 39 separate injuries i think most people are going to understand the, the difference and I, I can totally see why some people might be if, like insulted by everything being kind of grouped together. I was speaking to um, a woman who was, uh, I mean, she was raped at gunpoint actually. um, And she said like, I'm not, 
I'm not okay with hashtag me too, which is insulting for me as a victim of a really violent crime to have these women complaining about being slapped on the ass by their coworker, right? Um, and I can see that. And again, that's totally valid emotion to have. But I do think that the larger conversation about grubby behavior feeding into a larger kind of culture of of silencing women, of uh, demeaning or objectifying women um, is is part and parcel of the conversation we have about sexual assault in some ways. Treating your desire for a woman as more important than her mm. feelings in that moment, what, yeah. at whatever level that might be. I think the other potentially dangerous thing about Me Too, even though I agree with you, I think it's probably better that we're all talking about it than yeah. not. The, the, I think one of the potential problems is that this kind of basketing in or presenting it as a spectrum alienates men on the grubby end of that spectrum because yeah. it's insulting to them or they feel it is insulting to them mm -hmm. to suggest that they are on the same spectrum as rapists. That yeah. Even if they are, it's it seems so alien. I would never, like I've heard that quite a lot yeah. from men. I, I, I'm not that kind of guy. I would never yeah. do that even if, you know, they might do something on the slightly sleazy end of the spectrum, mm. you, know, you know, noticing that a girl is drunk and seeing her as more likely to sleep with them as a result yeah. on the very kind of innocent, more innocent end of the spectrum. Yeah. You know, she's not so drunk that she could refuse consent, but she's got her beer goggles on, so maybe I'm a better prospect. Yeah. That kind of ickiness, yeah. which just feels a bit ugh, uh -huh. but is quite natural to a large segment yeah. of guys... To have to feel like they're being lumped in with rapists. Yeah, but I think that that behavior does need to be called out as well. Yes, I mean, it's not you know. It does. I yeah, agree. but I you're agree. saying it. Alienate men feel alienated because they don't think that their their views are welcome. I suppose because they're automatically going to be seen as the same as all those other rapists. I guess. Yes, mm. I think, and they don't recognize the, themselves as predators. I think yeah. it's quite hard for somebody who's mostly a good person to see themselves as potentially dangerous. And it's insulting to be seen as potentially dangerous, even if you are potentially dangerous. It's yeah. a nasty... It's a nasty thing to be told. Yeah, but... Uh, part of it, you know, part of me wants to just go fucking get over it, get yeah, used to it. Exactly, you know. You know man I mean, up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Yeah, I find it's an unpleasant conversation and an unpleasant thing to have to face that you could be part of the problem. And nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to think that they're part of the problem for the most part. But at the end of the day, I mean, that that's... I think it's a necessary conversation to have or a necessary kind of reckoning that needs to happen, um, which is that men... Even though they're not rapists, even though they, you know, they'd never inflict physical violence on a woman, may still be complicit and part of a larger kind of cultural attitude towards women, um, which which continues to kind of demean us, right? You know, so for me, you know, at this point, you know, I'm 39, I'm single. Like I, I mean, and maybe part of the reason I am still single is I just like, I don't really want to put up with kind of that icky behavior that exists, right? I mean, I know obviously there's good men out there, but. Um, you know, even good men I know will kind of make some comments where I'm just like, well, what is that all about, right? You know, and, and they probably don't realize that that's annoying me, right? Um, but at the same time, it's like, and I, I probably should call them out on it more, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many different attitudes that, um, that we're, you know, men are probably aren't even aware of. Um, and I, I just think that they need to be made more aware of that and how that, you know, affects... Well this is one of the kind of, I don't know, aspirational goals of this podcast mm. is to show how it's possible to have mm -hmm. disagreements or to question assumptions in a way that doesn't feel attacking. Yeah. That I can go, well, fundamentally, 
do we agree on this? Yeah. And you don't feel offended or attacked or hurt. Yeah. And then we can actually have these difficult conversations. Yeah. And I can present you with the perspective of a of an assaulter and mm. say, well, how does that feel for him? And yeah. it doesn't hurt you. I feel like that's something that is disappearing from our culture, if it ever existed before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my novel, half of it's written from the point of view of the perpetrator, right? And like that, you know, people always ask me about that. I'm like, well, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, I, I think it's necessary to see that other point of view, right? Because at the end of the day, if I, if I look at my own life, you know, my life was fundamentally changed by that rape that happened on the afternoon. And it didn't like, it's not like it just happened. I wasn't like struck by lightning, right? Um, that was like another person who had lived 15 years of his life prior to the day that he raped me. And for some reason had evolved that kind of behavior where he thought like it was, it was okay to do something like that. Or if it wasn't okay, it was something he could maybe get away with because maybe he gotten away with it in the past. So I can't really try to make sense of the trauma and the impact on my life without thinking about the roots of it. which is maybe what happened in his life that led to him behaving like that. And it is a fascinating question because he was so young. He was young enough that, um, you know, in an an ordinary situation, you'd hold his parents responsible for behaviours. Yeah. Um, And that's... So that's an interesting thing. So that's a societal thing. That mm. that opens a window into seeing it as a social problem yeah. rather well, this, than an yeah. individual, which it is both an individual crime and a social yeah. thing. Like he was let down by the people around him because at 15 yeah. there should still be someone in your life who tells you what's right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it is a social problem. I mean, like, rape is a social problem. It's not an individual who is born... I mean, nobody's born a rapist, right? You evolve into that behavior. And same thing with, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who's, like, totally different scenario where he was incredibly empowered, you know, um, and, you know, incredibly powerful and, you know, in some ways... And obviously very privileged because of the power that he wielded. Like, you know, he used sexual violence as a way to further enforce that kind of power. And people knew about it. People knew about it for decades. There were always... There was always gossip about it and yeah he was you know it wasn't only until like this past year that that he was starting to be held accountable for it so what that is also a social problem if we exist in a society where this kind of behavior is is sort of condoned or people will look the other way because they don't want to they don't want to associate that kind of behavior with people that they already know well the underlying assumption with harvey weinstein seems to have been and i don't think many people would have thought of it in the way in that way but that he is this kind of monolith. You can't change him. All you can do is work around him. Mm, yeah. war- warn other women or make jokes about it. Yeah. There's no sense of him being as responsible as the other people involved. He's yeah. just operating in this juggernaut sort of way and you have to either accede to his wishes or avoid him. Yeah. You can't divert him or change him or stop him. Yeah. And that's a really weird thing yeah because he's also you know if you think of everyone as people yeah their wishes should be as important as his wishes yeah and that's effectively saying like if you were then kind of extrapolate that out to every perpetrator out there like oh every perpetrator out there is going to do their thing like oh harvey's just being harvey that's like the same argument saying boys will be boys you know people rapists are just going to go out and rape and you just got to deal with it or avoid that i mean you know as opposed to actually trying to change that behavior and trying to change the culture that that encourages that kind of behavior condones it yeah, it's and it's a very yeah very long bow. Yeah, as like it's a long term project. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a friend, um, Emily Jacob, and she's a survivor and kind of runs this quite cool project called um, Reconnected Life. And so she will say, you know, her goal is to end rape culture within a generation. And you're like, okay, but that's a concrete way of putting it. And, you know, if we all really worked at it, then yeah, maybe you could within a, end it within a generation. I mean, you're never going to be able to eliminate sexual violence entirely, but certainly you can try to eliminate these cultural um, you know, atmospheres and these kinds of structures that condone it. Yeah, I think that's a really admirable project. I think it's the one of the most important things is being able to break out of these bubbles that we've created mm. for ourselves to be able to talk to people because otherwise we're going to end up with a society of Eloy and Morlocks where you yeah. have these very civilised, gentle people treating each other very kindly and being very careful of one another's feelings and then around the edges coming out at night you have the savages yeah and your only option is to avoid them because you can't actually talk to them and yeah. if you don't if you get in their way they'll eat you yeah like that is the most that's the most dangerous outcome that i can see from the current trends in discourse and i'm desperately hoping that won't happen yeah yeah and i think that these kind of projects of like education are really good mm, yeah uh and I just, I just hope they work. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah, because I don't know. I think every time we do have like a, a public engagement opportunity, the people that are most likely to go are the ones who already, you know, as you're saying, already kind of converted and woke about the issue, I suppose. So I'm doing a, a talk tomorrow at the LSE, at the London School of Economics, with um, with a legal scholar. Um, I mean, if you want to come, I can yeah, take his spot. With a legal scholar feminist legal scholar um, who specializes in sexual violence, but then also Louise Dowdy, who um, is an author, and she wrote um, Apple Tree Yard, which was um, kind of a best-selling crime novel, and it got turned into a BBC series a year ago with, with Emily um, Emily Watson. And, um, you know, and, it, and it's also about rape and kind of legal process afterwards. And, and there is this just, you know, in some ways there's this fascination within media narratives about, about rape and the law, right? Um, and so every time, you know, you hear it often, most of the times you hear it reported in the news, it's always being framed within this kind of like legal criminal justice framework, right? Um, and, that, and that always opens the door for a kind of the false rape accusation kind of story to come out, which I, infuriates me, <laughs> um, that, kind of, that, that kind of trope. But at the end of the day, like, if we just kind of looked at the issue in a different way. I mean, yeah, it's a legal justice, it's, it's a legal issue and it's, it's a criminal justice issue and there needs to be a lot of work done in terms of improving the system, but it's also a public health issue because people's, you know, public, I mean, people's health, like mental and emotional and, and physical health are impacted for years afterwards. It is also like a financial issue, as I spoke about earlier. And if you think about all the companies that maybe have employees who are possibly survivors and not being able to do their best work because they aren't getting the resources they need to really recover, then that's also, it's really an issue of our whole society being diminished by a crime that continues to affect a lot of people um, who aren't getting the support they need. And uh, in the meantime, that crime continues because perpetrators aren't being held accountable. Yeah, and even the perpetrators who are being held accountable, if they are being held accountable, that's also a loss to society. If you can't prevent somebody from yeah. behaving in this way. I'm sure Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein had another 10 years of good work in him. And if he'd been able to do that work for the last 50 years without groping women, mm. we would have had another, you know, 
number of great movies that would have come out. Yeah, and like my my take on it at this stage is obviously because you know, people always bringing up you know Woody Allen who hasn't had his comeuppance yet, and you know Roman Polanski, and you know yeah. By the way, by no means am I suggesting that people shouldn't be brought to justice. No, but if exactly, we can stop yeah. people who have these tendencies or have this misapprehension of the world, yeah, from behaving badly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I say is that just you know it's like okay, I'm I'm glad that they were able to keep on making movies in some ways. I mean I, I'm not a massive fan of either of the movies, but <laughs> I'm like Woody Allen probably should just stop making movies after a while because he just makes too many of them and they're not particularly good anymore. But um, but yeah, I mean if these people had stopped making movies, yeah, I guess culturally we might have been at a loss because we wouldn't have been able to see their movies or their cultural products. But at the end of the day, there's like so much talent out there. I mean, you know, we both work on the arts. We know there's incredible amounts of talent out there and yet very few people actually get the opportunity to make a movie or to be seen on stage or to have their book published. So yeah. I'm quite okay with people that don't respect you know, human rights or women's rights to step aside and let other people kind of who maybe have greater respect for humanity um, be able to take the, their place. And, you well, know. Also, it's not a fundamental part of these artists' ability to create art that they treat women badly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, if we can have the artists who don't treat women badly then we won't lose them. Yeah. There's one of the, a, a joke that I heard being made um, about female comedians. Someone said, all my favourite comedians are female comedians. Mm -hmm. This is a Twitter exchange, which is boring to relate, but someone said, all of my favourite comedians are female comedians, and someone else responded, well, at least you won't have to uh, dump them off your books when they sexually harass somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, statistically, some women do commit sexual assault, but your chances are better. Yeah, if, yeah. you, if you're a fan of female artists or non-sexual assaulters, yeah. Yeah, exactly. you don't then have to go, oh, God, Louis C.K., I really liked you. Now I have to feel weird every time I see you. Yeah, you know, and like, I, you know, and Louis C.K., yeah, he's funny. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, he, he turned out a good oeuvre of work, you know, um, I'm totally okay if somebody else now is able to give it has the opportunity to show their work right so because um, I think we just need to you know zero tolerance policies people say but we also just need to be holding people to account for their behavior um, on stage and off stage behind the camera you know all these sorts of things because at the end of the day you can't just keep on saying like oh you have to separate the artist from from the individual or from the person because that that continues to create a culture where people can get away with stuff yeah yeah I, I agree and I hope that we can get to a point where people who have predatory instincts turn them towards good ends yeah, rather than towards the people who are around them who are subject to their power. Yeah. Like yeah. if you turn all of your predatory in instincts towards getting that next thing done mm. rather than, you know, making this next woman uncomfortable, yeah. we live in a better world because you're not going to get do away with predatory instincts. Yeah. But if you allow people that channel that, oh, this is an available channel through which to ex exercise your predatory instincts, then people end up getting incredibly badly hurt. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I'm also curious as you know even before that like where do the predatory instincts come from right um and a lot of it is you know i mean often when i was doing research for my novel i had to um I mean, I ended up speaking to a lot of forensic psychologists and social workers that deal with juvenile sex offenders, just, you know, because for me, one of the reasons I wrote it was just this massive question mark about, like, how can a 15-year-old boy 
just do that to a stranger just think it's okay to you know see a woman in the park follow her and violently attack her and then rape her right so um that was a big question mark over his behavior so i met with a bunch of you can say experts on on that on that kind of behavior um and uh and they you know and they all said well he you know nobody goes from zero from from not committing any kind of perpetration to what he did to you i mean there would have been a series of kind of escalating behaviors that he maybe never got account that he maybe was never held accountable for so um you know maybe he started off kind of like groping women you know making comments about women or girls and then groping them and then that led to other more severe forms of assault and then that kind of finally led to like my rape right um and i could have not reported it and then he probably would have gone on and done it to somebody else who may not have reported it so i mean it does kind of escalate out and so i think all of these people with predatory instincts if that behavior was just called out sooner and if they were held accountable for it, then you wouldn't have all these other lives that have been affected by it. Um, but yeah, that question of where... So that's an argument for the kind of Me Too call-outs. Mm, absolutely, yeah. If yeah. you can short-circuit these things early. Yeah. If they are sort of this slippery slope behavior, and I'm sure for most people they aren't, but for a certain number of people, you know, the thrill is never enough. You see that with pornography nowadays yeah. where... You know, things that would have seemed inconceivable 15 years ago are now standard fare. Yeah. Because, you know, there is a desire in humans. There's this hedonistic level. Once you've reached one thrill, you reach for the next thrill. That yeah. thrill loses its thrill. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the great things about human nature is that we're aspirational and we <laughs> move forward and yeah. we, we get better at the things that we're good at. Yeah. Um, unless you meet a wall and then you have to try something else. Yeah. And so we should be putting those walls in place earlier yeah. when the behaviour is minimal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's very good to aspire to making good movies or being a good comedian or writing good novels, but if that aspiration then become, you know, also becomes one of, oh, you know, I can have my way with this woman and then have my way with this other woman, then that, that's, you know, what, what does, where does that drive come from and is it... Yeah. Kind of, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that it like that. I'd been thinking of them as two separate streams, mm. maybe both uh, associated with a particular kind of personality. Mm, yeah. But the fact is that the more power you get, the reward is being able to get away with worse and worse yeah. behaviour. So, in yeah, fact, you, you are in incentivized in your artistic aspirations by this horrible underside. Yeah. I, I had been thinking of them as two completely separate things. Yeah. As, but... Maybe they aren't. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are you know very successful people out there who who aren't predators, but I think there is maybe a certain kind of personality type that aspires towards being successful and achieving these things and kind of getting getting your way, and then that also ties into the kind of behavior where you are used to getting your way or want to get your way sexually as well. So um, yeah, to bring it boringly back to women and men in comedy, there is a reason that there are fewer women than men in comedy. Mm. And it's partly to do with the reward that men who do comedy yeah. can pick up chicks easier. They have, there's a glamour to being on stage and so on and so forth. And I remember just sort of coming up in conversation once that if you, if you cut the industry down to the people who are only doing it for the art, for yeah. the interest, for the, for the game of it, for the idea of doing better and better work, yeah. it would probably be about 50-50. Really? Okay. Okay, so you think a lot of guys go into it because because they it gives them this certain kind of status 
Yeah, that and them it's to not all about sexual predation. But yeah. It is about being attractive to women. It's mm. a certain kind of power yeah. that you have. Yeah. Uh, you get to, you know, in the early days when you're not being paid, often you get to drink for free, you yeah. get to hang out with your friends at work, you get yeah. to be funny, and you yeah. get rewarded for that. Yeah. And so it's about as much about the social aspect and the status and the friendships mm. as it is about the actual yeah. work. And if yeah. you cut it down to just the people who are there because they love comedy and that what comedy can do, I yeah. think it would be much closer to gender parity. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's just a guess. No, but I mean, that, that's an interesting observation because, you know, that ties in with the certain kind of narrative trope that you see about like the the nerdy guy who can't get the girl and then somehow, you know, through whatever combination of things slash hard work slash luck or, you know, magic, I don't know, suddenly acquires some kind of status and then is able to get girls, right? Um, yeah. Whatever, can't buy me love, right? Yeah, I mean, any kind of, like, teen movie from the 80s, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and like, and you see that over and over again in, in movies directed by men and most, unfortunately, most movies these days are still directed by men. Uh, you know, this film Baby Driver, if you saw it, like, like uh, did you did you like it? I thought it was really interestingly edited. Oh yeah, I mean the editing was great, but and like the music was great and stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm like, nah, it's still about this like nerdy, shy, dorky guy who, I mean, happens to be a really good driver and then gets his girl at the end, and she's okay with him being kind of effectively a criminal in some ways. So, but it's it's still that trope, which I think you know. And it, I read an interesting article about like fanboy culture and how sort of, you know, particularly, I suppose, like, white nerdy fanboy culture has often been used as the reason to finance this film and make this film, because they're the core, those are the people going to see the, that's the audience that's going to pay bucks, you know, all this money, um, you know, to see this this other film, to see these kinds of films, and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I mean, Black Panther was just released, and that, you know, that doesn't specifically cater towards white people, right, you know, and there's a lot of female-oriented films that do well at the box office as well, so you can't just say that it's like the nerdy overlooked, you know, white kid uh, who wants to see these fantasies of being able to acquire status and and pick up chicks and stuff like that, which is fueling this, these kinds of narratives we see over and over again in film. Um, so yeah, so in some ways, I I wonder about that that desire to acquire a status that makes yourself more sexually attractive is that specifically a male thing, right? Uh, because I think as a woman, obviously there is appeal to that as well. Yeah, I don't I don't know about. Stat. I think I have. I am ambitious, and I want to get further than I am. Mm. But part of the appeal of status for me is that more people will hear what I have to say. Yeah, it's less about whether those people will want to fuck me or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm ambitious too. Like, I'd like to, you know, I have a novel out and I'd like to do more writing and I, I like being on stage and, you know, talking about these issues and stuff, but I don't do this to pick up guys, no. right? You know, um, I do this to have conversations that need to be had and to kind of maybe, like, provoke people's thoughts about these kinds of issues. So, and obviously there are men who do that as well, but, but yeah, you're right in terms of, like, how much of that... How much, how much of that is also driven by a desire to, you know, be seen as more sexually attractive or richer and all those kinds of things that work if you're a guy. But if you're a woman and you're seen as having a voice and powerful and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, successful, does that necessarily mean it's easier for you to pick up guys? Because actually probably they're scared of you. I don't know. Um, it, yeah, of, it reminds know. me of a story that I might have told on the podcast of a guy who heckled me uh, once and said oh I'd like to rape you and I took him to town oh I have spoken about this on the podcast and his response was I don't want to anymore 
<laughs> you took him to say, wait, he shouted that out. He shouted during it out and I, okay. during a performance and I kind of came down on him uh, with, you know, various, um, not even insults, but just sort of why would you say that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, his response was, no, I don't want to, uh, which might be a response to powerful expression or it might have just been that he didn't like everyone looking at him yeah well but i mean you you were quite right in terms of just calling him out because you can't can't shout stuff like that randomly i mean you certainly can't shout like you know threats of sexual violence so i mean it's the silliest thing to do in a comedy show because i Mm. have the microphone and the lights and the stage and you you can't really win as a heckler no the only the best that you can hope for is to ruin your own night and everybody else's Mm, mm -hmm. there's not not a great outcome. No. The only the only times I've seen heckles work is if they're kind of uh, a response to a rhetorical question, maybe, and right. they hit it just the, just the right moment, and it's harmless and fun and sort of a participation in the joke. Yeah. But even then, you know, the comedian had a punchline they were leading up to that they now have to bin. Yeah. Which you know, in the end, is not the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. But for the most part, it is just um, aggression. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, I mean, shifting it slightly to, like, another art form, I, I started realising, um, you know, like, magicians, like, professional magicians, like, on huge levels, like, you know, like, David Copperfield or David Blaine or, you know, I'll, I'll, so, like, this this notion of, you know, being a magician and, like, commanding the audience and um, basically tricking them into believing something, right? Um, I don't... Do you know any female magicians? I know a few, but not okay. many. Okay. It is a very, it's a very masculine thing to do. Yeah, and but so I don't know why. I don't know if that's just a like a biological thing or if it's a social thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a similar question about you know again why why is stand up comedy so male male dominated in a lot of ways like why why is like the, that kind of professional celebrity magician route so male dominated and like I don't know if it is something about that desire to kind of command attention and, and sort of kind of manipulate people. And obviously women can be very manipulative as well, but c- command attention, manipulate on like such a grand scale and that element of bravado um, that it requires, you know, is it just men tend to be more, um, I guess, socially conditioned to feel like they can step into that space and that that's a space that's sort of allowed to them. Or that you have more patience with your son than you would with your daughter who was interested in that. Mm, yeah. Or that they get more rewarded early on or just that more men are interested in it. I don't, I don't actually know what the answer is to that one and it'll be interesting to find out if we continue along this path towards gender yeah. equality in society, what, how that all shakes down. I, yeah. I don't know. But, I mean, women do have a, an option for power that is not available to men as well, but it's just that that form of power isn't particularly... Uh, respected or respectable which is the idea of you can be beautiful and you can make yourself more beautiful and you're rewarded for that Mm -hmm. and that's how you get power yeah and like that but that's problematic because again it's all about about the physical it's not about you know what's like it's problematic for a number of reasons not least of which is that you're investing your time and money into a depreciating asset but yeah and yeah i mean so much money oh my god like the beauty industry (laughs) um beauty and cosmetics industry are just like how much money are they raking in it's like seven billion dollars a year or 70 billion dollars some ridiculous amount of money more than you can conceive of yeah, but I mean, but yeah, obviously that ties into so many conversations have been happening about just, you know, as a woman, your your worth is still tied to how you look. And um, 
you know, it's just annoying, right? You know, I'm like, so I, another reason why podcasting is a great medium or novel writing, even. Yeah, no yeah. one has to look at you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I um, where's going to go with that? Oh, so many things to talk about that in terms of, in terms of just how, how but like again if you look at narratives in in art and media right in literature about that about the female beauty and obviously there's been entire books written about this right so um, I'm not I'm not going to try to claim to be an expert on it but this thing about female beauty being a form of power is it's just so couched in a certain uh, essentially like male authored narrative in a lot of ways right um, and you know. Just, the, the, for example, this notion of the femme fatale, right? Like a woman who uses her beauty and her sexuality to to seduce men and, you know, have her way with them and then fling them aside and get what she wants. Like, I, I mean... She's got to be careful with the flinging because... Yeah, flinging. <laughs> um, that, I mean, that would be quite cool if actually, like, physically you could do that. But, um, it would certainly but, change the dynamic a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, um, you know, that's... I, I'm sure maybe there are women who were like that. I don't actually know any women like that, but I think it's um, it's largely like that's a male authored narrative of of woman that you can't trust because she's so beautiful, and and the fact that you know that's what makes her a villainous or a temptress. Is, well, the idea that men are helpless in the face of female beauty yeah. is you know constantly contradicted by the fact that your helplessness is you know limited by your own restraint on your physical power. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, I mean, if anything, it's it's in some ways the opposite. If you are a very beautiful woman, uh, you know, for example, if you're working in the film industry or in show business, then that beauty is sort of co-opted by people to make money in a lot of ways. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I kind of I'm always kind of annoyed about kind of the femme fatale like f- character because I'm like that. You know, I don't really think that's particularly realistic because it's almost like the woman has no heart, but she looks beautiful. And it's like, I don't know. I think most people actually do have a heart and. You know, I don't know that many people, that women that use their beauty to like, you know, totally manipulate men. Maybe there are some, but I think because you see it in movies and television so much, men are inclined to think that of women. Like, oh, I can't trust her because she's too beautiful or, you know, she's going to hurt me because she's too beautiful. Yes. And I think there's also this aspect to this kind of battle of the sexes. Mm way of thinking of the world yeah which i don't necessarily agree with but then you you have a certain proportion of men who are resentful of the perceived power of women in society particularly now uh, as women have a larger voice and as they have a larger voice they have a perceived disproportionately larger voice because of stats like you know if you see a woman talking 25 percent of the time in a mixed group you assume she's talking that it's fifty percent. Yeah, yeah. And if she's talking fifty percent, you assume she's dominating the conversation. Yeah. That that's a you know study. As far as that goes, that's something that that is perceived. So not only is there a rise in female power or voice, mm. there's also that the the perception that that is much bigger than it actually is. Yeah. So yeah. there actually is a rise, but it seems huge. Yeah. And then you have men who have you know had their children taken away from them or whatever it happens to be, they fell in love with a woman, she fell out of love with them and left them and they were heartbroken. Yeah. So there is this idea of, of women as having more power than they actually have, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Or than they actually have in a broad sense. Yeah. Because an individual interaction doesn't dictate the broader spectrum. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, structurally, I don't think you can say that women have more power than men if you just look at... You know, I mean, if you're looking d- at numbers, yeah. Sure. <laughs> no, if you're looking at actual facts, Winnie, like, yeah, then of come course. On, facts here, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, but that goes back to the conversation about facts. Like, if you're, if we were to look 
at the, at the kind of the numbers of how many women are in decision-making positions, how many women sit on boards, how much women earn versus how much men earn. Like those are facts which pretty much maybe indicate that women aren't as powerful as, as some men would like to think. And yet those men feel that their, their rights as men have been trampled upon and they feel like women are becoming too powerful and, you know, that's, that's, they're not okay with it and they're offended by that, I suppose. And that's kind of, I guess, goes back to your earlier conversation about feelings. Like, is that enough of a reason to make certain arguments? Yeah, and the feelings-based argument against that is that, you know, women choose to make less than men, women choose to have children and they have this power that men don't have, which is to have children and that is in itself its own reward. It doesn't need a financial reward, it doesn't need to be balanced out in a financial way. Mm. That it's this unquantifiable good that can be used on the other side of the scales to say at all times, no matter where the scales are, that women are equal. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, because they're, you know, better in this one way that you can't... You can't compare them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the ideal world, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't quantify them. You wouldn't need to quantify things because we'd all accept, like, okay, you know, earning a lot of money is that. There's a validity to that, and there's also validity to being able to have kids and raise vectors. them. You know, vectors, right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, you know, the fact is, one's one's life becomes much easier if you have a lot of money. So, I mean, if you're a woman that has been blessed. Um, by abundance in fertility and you have you know five children that you're raising as a single mother like the quality of life is going to be significantly harder than a man who earns a lot of money who's never had to raise money who's never had to raise kids and in some ways by not raising kids is not kind of contributing as directly to the future of human society um, even though he's you know he has money he's earning it and spending it in certain ways which are also kind of a possibly benefit to society as well but like you know so in the other world we wouldn't have to quantify things but you know there are very material differences um between people's quality of life based on whether or not they have money based on whether or not they have kids and are trying to support those kids on a, a certain kind of finite amount of money yes and the the contribution that you're making to society as a whole as well that you were talking about mm, becomes yeah. Is, is largely shaped by things like how much money you have to raise your children. Yeah. So if you are very poor and you have a, a large number of children, it is more difficult for those children to contribute to society. Yeah. They have to work a heck of a lot harder to get into a position of power. Yeah. yeah. Um, than their, you know, cohort who wake up with a million dollar parents you know yeah exactly which is where i kind of yeah i mean they often say the people with privilege are the ones that don't realize that they have it which which in some ways is the definition of privilege you know just not knowing that actually you know your life is that much better off than other people um, yeah never being put in your place i think yeah. is probably the idea that you can achieve anything is is a privilege yeah yeah it's also a lie but it's a no, nice one it is a lie but i mean you know, as somebody who's raised American, there, there was this kind of weird, you know, I mean, like in America, there's all these sorts of like, I literally, like I grew up and, you know, the slogan I was always being fed was that, um, or the one that I remember, it, because it's so egregious, was, you know, what, the last the last four letters of American are I can, right? <laughs> <laughs> you ever heard of an American? No, <laughs> that's because we're Americans. So you can do anything you want, right? Um, we can, which kind of, you know, is that's, that's the American dream, which is kind of all very new 
feel liberal as well at the same time because uh, it's sort of very individualistic um, and it doesn't it's not really aware of inequalities that exist but but you know we're in America we're always going to raise I mean certainly you know if at the schools I went to and I didn't go to particularly posh ones but you know the 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 narrative you're fed is that you can do anything you want as an American because, you know, it's the land of the free and there's equality and this and that. And actually, I think there's like huge amounts of inequality in America yeah. and that inequality is exacerbated by, um, you know, for example, the lack of kind of universal health care, you know, um, it's exacerbated by, you know, no parental leave, you know, no mandatory, um, you know, maternal maternity leave. So there are structural things that could be changed to actually make, Society is more equal, um, and America, you know, despite being a country that claims to be really equal, and you know, this land of opportunity, which it is in some ways, there's a lot of opportunity there, um, is also very not equal in the way that society's structured. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a terrible thing. I could talk to you all day, but we've, we're running out of time. I've fine. told you yeah. I, I would take you for an hour, and I've <laughs> taken you for slightly longer. Oh than right, that. okay. <laughs> um, where can people find your work? Uh, what should they do to support you in the Clear Lines Festival and where can they buy your novel? Yeah, so my novel's called Dark Chapter. My full name is Winnie M. Lee, but if you literally just Google Dark Chapter, you should be f- able to find it through, you know, any major bookseller. Um, certainly, I mean, it, it, it's being translated to a bunch of different languages. So in the UK and the US, you can find it from any major bookseller. I mean, Amazon has it, so does Barnes & Noble or Waterstones. Um a book depository is a really good website if you want to order it and if you're in a different country um it just it's out in holland it's out in dutch it's out in swedish right now it's wow. coming out in korean next month um and then german probably icelandic italian czech and uh chinese later on this year but anyway have a look for dark chapter online and you can get it um and then the clear lines festival is a festival that you know we spoke about earlier um i think maybe the best way is to find us on twitter that's like at clear lines uk or at clear lines us or go to our website clearlines.org.uk and um, just get in touch if you're interested in being part of it we're always looking for artists or speakers or activists that want to show their work um about about these issues about sexual assault and consent um and we're also always looking for volunteers that kind of want to make it happen so at the moment we're looking at there's probably going to be a scottish um edition and then a u.s edition on on kind of the east coast or new york philly area and then in la as well so if that sounds like something you'd be interested in going to as an audience member you need more audience than you need than you need um performers so also go along and check it out if it's something you're interested in and if it's something you're not interested in you should also probably go. Yeah, that's probably true because, um, you know, and Alice performed last time and it was, you know, it's just great to have your, your insight on things and to be able to laugh at these issues and also think a bit more deeply about these issues oh, as well. Oh, it was such a fantastic night. There were four really different comedians mm. on. One of the most infuriating things was somebody who came, uh, responded to it, a picture of all of the performers chatting about the show afterwards by saying, oh, women whining about men. I was like, oh man, you should have come to the show. It yeah. Was, it was so not that. It yeah. was so interesting. It was so dynamic. It was so diverse. It mm. was so uh, engaging and counterintuitive and really enjoyable. So if you do get a chance to go along, do that and buy Winnie's book. Yeah, and I'm uh, at Winnie Emily on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Um, and that's my website address, winnieemily.com. So yeah, but um, it was lovely chatting with you. Oh, it was so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Yeah, thanks.
do you know? Oh, do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doppers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doppers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doppers, he will roar. Well, tie your ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifle, doll, lolly rifle, day.